When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Mark Devine here coming at you from SealFit and Unbeatable Mind headquarters in Encinitas, California. Welcome back to the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Before we get started with a wickedly cool guest who I know you're going to love, I want to remind you that if you haven't yet subscribed to our podcast, please get on that. You can go to SealFit.com, the podcast page. You can just Google the podcast, you know, just get on our subscription list so you can know when the latest issues or episodes come out. Also, if you like what you hear today, please go rate it. You know, I've never asked for a rating before, but my team has been begging me uh, to ask for a rating or to review it on Unbeal Minds. Just go to iTunes or Unbeal Mind Podcast on iTunes. Go to iTunes and just search for it and um, just rate the thing. And hopefully you'll rate it five stars. So today I've got a an author and kind of fellow journeyman named Mitch Horowitz. He's had a lifelong interest in man's search for meaning. Uh, of course, we we know a great book by the title from Viktor Frankl. Thank you very much for referencing Viktor. Um, Mitch, uh, so Mitch is an award-winning author. He wrote a book called Occult America, which is, is sounds fascinating. I want to read that one next. And more recently, a book that I just uh, jammed through a chunk of it last night called One Simple Idea. He's written on everything from the war on witches to the secret life of Ronald Reagan. He writes for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Salon, Washington Post, etc., etc. He's a voice of an audiobook series, including the Jefferson Bible, and a host of a web series called Origins Superstitions. Fascinating. And uh, professionally, Mitch is VP and executive editor at Tarcher Peregrine, which is a division of Penguin House. We can find more about him at MitchHorowitz.com, but we will come back to all of that later on. So, Mitch, thank you so much. Welcome uh, today. I think um, I think that we have a lot in common, but I'm, you know, you, I was as I was saying before we started this call, I was just fascinated that you took a historical look at this idea of you know positive thinking and uh, kind of coined this it as the American creed. Yeah. Um, how did you get interested in, in you know into this uh, subject? Where did this all come from? Well, first of all, thanks. You know, I'm I'm glad to be here. We definitely have a lot in common. I'm a fan of your work, Excellent. and my interest goes back to when I was a kid in early adolescence. My home was getting split apart by divorce. We were mm-hmm. facing financial disaster. 
This happens in a lot of households in America. And I began looking for practical philosophies that could act as a searchlight to help me make it through. Right. Uh, I, I was, uh, I had been given a translation of a, of a Talmudic book, the book hmm. of ancient Jewish wisdom called Ethics of the Fathers. As I began to read into this book, I found that the great rabbinic sages advised positive thinking. That was one idea among others in their outlook on life, which shocked me and surprised me because most of us think of injunctions to think positively as something that they're, uh, that is relatively new, right. uh, as something sometimes that we don't even take that seriously, frankly, that we think belongs to refrigerator magnets or page-to-day calendars. Right. But as a kid, I began to discover that a lot of our most ancient ethical philosophies do rely, among other things, on a positive attitude of mind. And that, that led me on this journey that you know, brings us together here on this call today. Yeah. I, I stuck with it my whole life. Yeah, so the idea, the one simple idea that you wrote about and that you, you, yeah. know, you perused the history of is this idea that positive thinking can transform your life. Is that That's right? right? That's the simple idea. Right and on. I thought yeah. it was fascinating because um, I, I share that, you know, that most spiritual traditions um, have some element of, you know, mental development. And mm-hmm. when we talk about mental development, we always come around to, you know, curating and cultivating a positive mindset. And then, you, so you start to see this show up, according to your work, in the late 1800s in America. Yep. Now, did did it? Do you think that the original proponents, you know, such as uh, I think you reference a, a Swedenborgian mm-hmm. guy, mm-hmm. and then yep. of course William James and and even Emerson, who's a, you know well known author, but all these guys, where did they come across the philosophy to start developing this new creed, you know, on on our continent? Well, some of the earliest folks who began to develop this idea on our continent were fleeing religious persecution in Europe. Uh, in right. the early 1800s, there were people who were experimenting with what was then called mesmerism and what we today would call hypnotism, mm-hmm. who were sometimes encountering problems in societies that they lived in. There were, was lingering religious persecution, or you had social upheavals like the French Revolution, which made experimentation in certain fields for certain people difficult. Mm-hmm. So some of the, these people began to cross the Atlantic to America, and they were experimenting with what then didn't really have a name. You know, people had this idea that there was this deeper aspect of the mind. Today, we use terms like subconscious mind or unconscious mind, but those terms only began to gain popularity in the 1890s. It's fairly new. Back then, uh, our forefathers were struggling to find a vocabulary to describe what was going on. Because if you said the mind, people thought, well, you use the mind to do arithmetic problems, to plan out how you're going to plant your fields. No one had this idea that there was possibly this deeper glacial mind that underscored everything that we did. So you had experimenters who were coming from Europe to America. You had some people who were reading scripture and just coming up with these ideas independently on Mm -hmm. their own. Mm -hmm. There were figures like Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of the Christian Science Church, Phineas Quimby, an early mental healer in New Mm -hmm. England in the 1830s, 1840s. And then you had figures who were more, you could say, expansive in their thinking, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, who were Mm -hmm. among the first Americans to be reading early translations of the Tao Te Ching or the Bhagavad Gita Mm -hmm. or some of the literature of the East. Now, we have to keep in mind that some of this literature was only translated 
really during the lifetimes of these people we're talking about. The earliest English translation of the Tao Te Ching goes back to 1838, so Westerners didn't have access to this material. But Emerson did have access to some of these books. There were very few such books in America at the time, but he and his circle had access to them, and they began to piece together Eastern religious ideas with Western religious ideas. There was an atmosphere of experimentation, particularly in New England at that time. Mm -hmm. You had the mental healing folks, you had the mesmerists, you had the Mm. transcendentalists, and eventually they began to put together what we today would call the power of positive thinking. That's where it was born. Right. And I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, in Europe, a lot of this um, got kind of pushed underground. This is how the mystic schools and the secret societies popped up. Is that right? I think that's correct. Yeah. So they were trying to practice and trying to like develop, you know, they were, they were leveraging, you know, uh, tools and tactics from yoga and from Kabbalah and other, other systems that had mental development in it. And that was not, you know, viewed as, uh, I guess, socially correct. And so they were, you know, persecuted. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely truth to that. You know, the the winds of what was acceptable and what was unacceptable could change in Europe based on who was in power. Right. So Queen Elizabeth in England, for example, was actually pretty friendly to experimentation and spirituality. But when she was replaced by King James, there was less friendliness. So people who had been above ground, like a figure like John Dee, who was kind of a court astrologer or a court magician to Queen Elizabeth after her death, a guy like that was more or less driven underground. So the winds of change could blow very harshly and change very suddenly in Europe. You might have people who were experimenting with mesmerism who were tolerated, and then after the French Revolution, maybe for reasons having nothing to do with mesmerism, but maybe having to do with their background, they experienced persecution. So there were these sudden and erratic changes in Europe, and as you said, you know, some of this was driven underground. Right. And I think it's also uh, appropriate to point out that, you know, America, you know, the, the great ground of capitalist experimentation, um, kind of took the ideas from the realm of what were mostly being used for healing and spirituality and yep. began to apply it toward success. Am I right? And that's right, where some right. of the early kind of like Napoleon Hill and Dale Carnegie and Vincent Peale and these guys were really focused on using, you know, the power of positive thinking and mental development for outward success rather than, you know, spiritual development, even though they, touched on that sometimes. Yeah, in America, you know, first of all, so much of this material, this positive thinking material began as part of the mental healing movement in in our country. And American medicine was in terrible condition throughout the 19th century. We really didn't have our first proper hospitals or teaching hospitals, med school programs until the 1890s. Once changes positive changes began in American medicine, some of the people who had been spending their time in the mental healing movement uh, not only found themselves feeling less relevant, but in some cases were hounded out of business because licensing requirements meant that they could no longer refer to themselves legally mm-hmm. as healers and so forth. And that was a big political battle in our country in the 1890s. So a lot of the alternative practitioners sort of got pushed to the margins. And combined with that, the economy was just growing by leaps and bounds. And for the very first time, people around the country were seeing new products in the Sears catalog and department stores were opening and people were moving off farms and moving into uh, workplaces in more urban environments. Things were changing so rapidly and the mental healing crowd 
began to realize that, well, you know, if these things are really laws, if there is some sort of mental law of cause and effect, shouldn't it be applicable in material areas of life as well? And so we began to see the earliest stirrings of what is now called the prosperity gospel. And Mm -hmm. it came out of the positive thinking world, 1890s, early 20th century. One of the most influential books in that regard was a book called The Science of Getting Rich Mm. by Wallace D. Waddles, which many of your listeners probably know. And, you know, he really, in some regards, set the template for that kind of literature. It was very earnest. You know, it wasn't a cynical literature. Mm -hmm. It was this idea that if we could use our minds to heal, if we could use our minds to understand the hidden world, we could also use it to affect things in the seen world, the material world. And Americans were ready for that message. Right. And I think that's... um Probably why you call this the the American creed was that your yep. word? Is that where did you come up with that? That's my term. You your know, term? the closest it, it, everybody in this country, whatever their religious or political outlook seems to be, can usually find some commonality around this idea that what you think determines what happens to you. Right. And people are not walking around Italy and France and Russia and other nations thinking that. Uh, my book is being translated into Chinese, and I'm very grateful for that, but sometimes, you know, I have these long conversations with the Chinese translator, and I'll talk about, I'll use an expression that to us would be very ordinary, like, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want something with your whole soul, it can make a difference, and the translator will be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) It's it's funny, but these ideas are, they are uniquely American. We've exported them to other parts of the world, but that notion that your attitude affects what's going to happen to you, it's, it's, unique to American soil in, in, in this age. That's fascinating. We've exported it elsewhere. It's not unheard of by any means, but it was born here. Yeah, and, and it kind of forms the bedrock of the whole entrepreneurial movement, you know, as, as you know, as it continues to gain steam right today. Yeah. Like one thing that's like radically unique about America is our entrepreneurial spirit, which is infused with this American creed of, hey, anything's possible if I put my mind to it. Yeah, and there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, when the stock market appeared in this country in the 1890s, there was this feeling that money could kind of come from out of the ether. But at the same time, you know, that's a social cause. But I think there were inner causes, too. There were people who encountered some of these books, and I've had the experience myself, encountered early New Thought books like Conquest Mm -hmm. of Poverty uh, by a woman named Helen Wilmans, and they felt that these books provided them with a pivot point in their lives. I still meet people who have those experiences today. I'll meet people who have read a book like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and they feel that... That had a big influence on me. I think I read that seven times when I was 17. (laughs) No kidding. It's been a big influence on me, and, Mm -hmm. and, and I've had friends who have described problems to me and I've said, look, I want you to do something that you wouldn't ordinarily think of doing. You get a copy of Napoleon Hill, you get a copy of Think and Grow Rich, read it and do what he says as if your life depends on it. That's the key. You can't just read it and stroke your chin or say, well, I'll give it a little try. It won't succumb to that. It only succumbs to doing it with your whole being. And when people do that, I meet artists, doctors, business people, people of all walks of life who describe their lives as before and after they discovered that book. So there's been a testimony in this country that that has been very influential around some of this literature. Yeah, I experienced that a lot with the Unbeatable Mind program for people Mm -hmm. who have not been exposed to these. And if, you know, essentially, I think that's kind of what 
when we can synthesize and present ideas in a way that will uh, um, connect with a new cultural context, and that's a really valuable contribution, you know, to the, you know, to the fold. And I have, uh, and you you hit it on the head, yeah. Connecting it with, a, with putting it in a new cultural context, right? Right. We we think people have heard of these ideas, but there's so many people who have not. Right. And it's amazing when you reach them, they're like, I never knew I had these options. You know, I never Correct. knew this existed. Well, I, I think it's, you know, like Carol Dweck says, growth, the growth or fixed mindset, right? So a lot of time, you know, the vast majority of people have that fixed mindset. And yeah. it, all it takes is a trigger, like, you know, re, you know, reading Think and Grow Rich, in my case, or, you know, for someone reading your book, or, or you know, getting, getting exposed to, you know, one principle that unlocks you know, a, a door, right. To new ways of thinking. And then boom, uh, they, they just shift to a growth mind and they can't stop consuming. And that's, that's huge. Then they're on the path, right. They're, you know, like almost born again, not in the, you know, Christian born again sense, but like, boom, life has a whole new sense of opportunity and purpose. That is cool. But yes, it's, it's, it's interesting. The, um, a lot of your peers in the uh, journalist, uh, journalistic and academic society still really poo-poo the positive thinking. Yep. Um, and a, a lot of that, I think, is because of kind of new age philosophy lacked what you just referenced in our last bit was is that you actually got to do the work, right? And so there yep. was a lot of fan- yep. fantastical thinking about, hey, all I got to do is be positive and it's all going to come to me. You know, my mother-in-law had that going on and, and you know, it just didn't work. And, she, you know, she, mm-hmm. I don't want to get into it, obviously, right here because I'll probably get <laughs> Mother-in-law about, stories are always fraught with issues. <laughs> we don't want to talk about those on the podcast. Yeah, but, yeah. But there's a lot of people who have, uh, you know, who've been exposed to that and and, and then just think, well, that's kind of crock of shit, you know, and the, the whole, yeah, um, yeah. you know, New Age movement and uh, The Secret and all that. What is your take on that? I mean, how how do we get so off track in the modern mainstream with this uh, philosophy? That's a great question, and I encounter it all the time. There's here we have this philosophy of positive thinking that, on one hand, is embraced by millions of Americans, and on the other hand, is reviled by many journalists, academics, social critics, and right. and I sort of occupy both worlds, and I I feel very tugged in between them. One of the things I try to do is, first of all, I always defend new age and positive thinking philosophy mm-hmm. to the journals of opinion within the mainstream newspapers, among mainstream journalists, because very often these people are operating out of a conformist mindset with regard mm-hmm. to their attitude towards new age or positive thinking. Mm-hmm. They've never read one of these books. They've never read a Norman Vincent Peale. Um, they've never read in, uh, you know, a, a Napoleon Hill, a Dale Carnegie, and so forth. So they're operating off of an educated opinion that tells them these books hold nothing serious for sensitive, intelligent, searching people. They've never sought to verify that, right. but that's just become kind of a check mark on a list of what does and does not constitute serious thoughts. So right. they're operating from an unexamined assumption. I find very often in private, I'm able to persuade them of that. In public, it's more difficult right. because there's been a kind of intellectual vogue in this country since the 1950s when Norman Vincent Peale and 
power of positive thinking first became popular, that all this stuff misleads people, misdirects people, blinds them to the complexities of daily life. Mm -hmm. And I, I challenge that entirely. You can find some of that attitude in certain parts of this literature. You can also find that attitude contradicted in many parts of this literature. Wallace D. Waddles, although he hasn't been with us for a long time, was very much a social radical. When he wrote The Science of Getting Rich, he was also running for Congress on the Socialist Party ticket. Mm -hmm. uh, Marcus Garvey, the pioneering black nationalist, was very much into positive mind metaphysics. And I've demonstrated that by looking at his speeches and his articles. Now, more recently, some of this philosophy has gone in what very loosely could be considered a more conservative tradition, and that's what some journalists and social commentators are operating off of. But I would put the challenge back to them that there's nothing in that that suggests that it's ineffective or unhelpful in the life of an individual who is trying to figure out whether there are ways to use his or her mind that are different, that are more effective, that might result in that person discovering better, more applicable ways of conducting themselves out into the world. It's a delicate question because if there is a pro-business um, or a pro-corporate tone, for example, and some people like Napoleon Hill or Norman Vincent Peale, and there is, does that mean that the artist, the activist, the teacher, the nonconformist can't also use that material to find better ways of conduct. And my conclusion is that not only is that possible, but it's going on all the time. So right. there have been kind of cultural frictions that have made the the journalistic and academic classes hostile to this literature, but they're just not looking deeply enough. They're also not wrong all the time. I mean, right. sometimes their critique is, is correct. Right. And as I've said before, it's not that they're wrong, it's that they're not right enough because they are their 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 inquiry is shallow into this literature. And this literature has been and these ideas have been so influential across such a sweep of the nation, different races, classes, people mm -hmm. of different political and economic outlooks, that you can't really appreciate where America is as a nation and you can't really in your heart of hearts want to improve America and fix the things that are wrong with America if you don't at least take the time to grok to ideas that have animated the lives of so many of its people. It's not enough to have a shallow drive-by inquiry of this literature. It's insufficient. So my challenge back to the journalistic world is, would you cover a presidential campaign this way? Would you write an article about state or local corruption this way? Your inquiry is too shallow. Mm -hmm. You need to go back, look deeper, talk to people like us, and then see if maybe your opinion is leavened a little bit. Right. Hey, you know, yoga is for warriors. Maybe you've heard that my new book, Kokoro Yoga, is out. I'm totally stoked about this book. It's been over a year in the making. So go to warrioryoga.com to buy the book. Because if you do, I'll give you a couple free things, such as the first chapter of the book, as well as a video for recovery. So prepare your body, mind, and spirit on your quest to self-mastery by checking out Kokoro Yoga. Go to warriorgo.com. Hoo-yah. No, and I think a big part of the challenge is that th these things are very hard to 
uh, validate scientifically, right? And but that's starting to change too. I mean, I, I read a recent. I wish I could remember who um, published the research project about the you know uh, validating positive thinking in terms of obviously just mood and and uh, having a, an effect on. Uh, depression and those types of things. And I've yep. seen references uh, about research projects about just smiling, you know, and having a, and that's more of a, yep. that's a more of a physiological, psychological thing. It's, it's absolutely you know? correct. A friend of mine, um, who's a professor of psychiatry at Georgetown University, Norm Rosenthal, mm. was one of the designers of a study on whether Botox, Botox injections relieve <laughs> depression. And what Norm and his collaborators found was that there was a marked improvement in depression for people receiving Botox treatments. And they were trying to figure out why. And their hypothesis is that Botox freezes certain muscles in the face that are involved in frowning. <laughs> and that it may be a physiological fact that mood as a biochemical phenomena follows expression rather than vice versa. So the studies are incredible. Now, one of the things I feel like I can share with you and your listeners is that although the placebo studies and physiological studies and the cognitive studies are out there, I've read them, I've written about them, I applaud them, they're remarkable. The truth is my outlook on life really is a metaphysical outlook, you know, it would be easy for me to just talk in terms of cognition and psychology and biochemistry and just take a kind of science journalist approach to it. But the truth is, I write as a believer and I write as somebody with a metaphysical view on life. I think if I had to point to a piece of literature that captured my point of view, it would be Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, The Oversoul. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a non-physical aspect to intelligence. I do think that we all participate in some sort of cognition or exchange of information mm-hmm. that is extra-physical, that goes beyond the body, and there is something non-physical in how thought impacts our circumstances and relations, and I'm working very hard to try to figure out what that is, to try to find some way of enunciating it, or to try to find some way of using it, which may be a, a goal that's more practically within reach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's something that I've felt emboldened to talk about more and more, because when I'm doing mainstream interviews or writing for mainstream news sources and such, the people I'm working with jump to the assumption that I must be interested in all this stuff because there's a cognitive basis for it. And yeah, there is, but I write from a spiritual perspective. I do believe that it's a viable spiritual path. I do believe that it's a path that makes a positive difference in the life of the individual. And I'm trying to understand when does that happen? Under what circumstances? When does it not happen? Because it's not evidently always working the same way. We live under a lot of laws and forces. aspect of our existence. And if we can work with that, experiment with that, we can discover a whole different dimension to life, a different set of possibilities. Yeah, no, I, com- I completely agree. Um, you know, my pretty deep exposure and practice of yoga, um, you know, which also uh, has heavily influenced the martial art, if not, you know, mm-hmm. being the, the ultimate, you know, uh, progenitor to the martial arts, you know, coming from a warrior tradition and practicing those kind of ancient 
physical, mental, spiritual practices. I'm not going to just call them spiritual because they really were physical, mental, and spiritual. In fact, yoga, you know, the, the, one of the primary treatises on yoga, as you're aware, is Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And he, mm-hmm. in the very first sutra, or second sutra, he says yoga is the science of mental development. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so here we've got a training system that you could consider the oldest personal development system known to mankind. It's thousands of years old. Mm-hmm. And yet it's not something that modern science has really any ability still to uh, to validate from a third-party mm-hmm. objective standpoint. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that that cancels out 5,000 years of personal experience with the power of power and benefit um, for transformation and for development of the mental development tools, which include, yes. you know, positive m- mental thinking, right? Because, you know, the whole approach that we use at Unbeatable Mind is heavily influenced by that as well, is that negative thinking really destroys performance, weakens you, and will lead to disease and disruption of, of your homeostasis. So, you know, why would we want to be on that negative kind of um, scale of energetic and emotional uh, energy. So we yes. want to move toward positive. Well, how do we how do we move into the positive energetic realm? Well, we we use positive internal dialogue. Well, that's positive thinking, right? We use positive yes. words. We use positive emotions, <laughs> and and we practice it because they need mm-hmm. to be practiced. Anyways, I'll get off my horse there. But the other thing I, I wanted to ask you about is how can how can the American creed be that we can achieve anything we put our minds to? You know, let's be positive and get you know transform ourselves in our, our country and the, and the future is always going to be better and that we can create companies and industries that will mm-hmm. um, always make the world better. How can that be our American creed? And yet the media and politics be so unbelievably negative yeah. at yeah. the same time. It's really kind of uncanny to me that we have this it, polarity. It, it is what you have put your finger on is so important because frankly, we may be at a kind of crossroads. I mean, right. when I concluded this book, couple of years ago, and I referred to positive thinking as the American creed, I could point to every possible example to back up that claim. But we have got uh, this attitude of hostility that now dominates our political culture and for a long time has dominated our digital and and our online culture. And I would challenge people to look at that very, very seriously. I mean, first of all, political wins come and go. You know, I don't know who's going to win the election. I know that Donald Trump doesn't sound a lot like Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. and I I prefer somebody who sounds like Ronald Reagan. Now, you know, whoever is going to win is going to win. You know, political trends and, and moods come and go. But of more concern to me personally is the level of vitriol and invective and hatred, frankly, that goes around online. And I would Mm -hmm. ask each individual to look at that in his or her own life, because I was talking about this uh, the other night on a radio show, and, and I was surprised at the level of response, most of it positive that I got to it. If a person feels that they are stuck in life, if their plans aren't working out, if their relationships aren't working out, I would challenge that person to look at the role of gossip in their mm-hmm. own life because that is a poison. It is a poison. Absolutely. And if you start to look at most of our entertainment, you'll see that a lot of it, a lot of it 
is based in gossip and humiliation. That's true for most social media. There is a tone of sarcasm and cynicism and hostility online, uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, on the other sites. Most of our so-called reality television really just involves putting people in situations where somebody's going to take a spill, somebody's mm-hmm. going to get humiliated. And if you listen to most of our talk radio, forget it. You know, all day long, it's who's going to be the next person who is made out to look like a fool or, right. you know, who gets called a name and can't collect himself in time to, to strike back. We're on a steady daily diet of this stuff, and we all participate in it. It's poison. It's absolute sure poison. And I do think that there is a circuit of influence that we are part of in life. You could you could use the expression what goes around comes around. You could use the expression karma. Right. Every religion, every civilization known to man since primeval times, literally, literally, has some conception of karma. Right. You can you can use whatever you know Jesus said, in what measure you meet out, so shall be measured out unto you. The mm-hmm. Jewish sages said the same things. There's not a system on earth going back to deepest antiquity that doesn't have some concept of karma. I take that very seriously, deadly seriously. And we as a culture, but more importantly, we as individuals have to ask ourselves, what relationship am I going to have to all this stuff? I would challenge everybody listening, everybody listening, you know, really sit down and ask yourself, am I participating in gossip all day long on social media, even if just passively, am I doing that? And even just consuming the yeah, I guess what you're saying, participating is is interacting, but I think just yep. consuming, just consuming just media consuming. on TV, yep. consuming you know uh, Twitter feeds and internet that is negative and 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 gossipy is is participating. It's poison. It's yeah. poison, and it goes on everywhere. And we reward it and we applaud it. You know, I mean, if you name the top ten most famous Americans right now, you know, people are going to have different conceptions of who that is. But everyone's list is going to be dominated by people who are known for humiliating other people, and that says something. So. I would say anybody listening who wants to make an immediate improvement in his or her life, and I would stand by that, immediate improvement, cut out the gossip. Stop consuming it. Stop participating in it. Mm -hmm. Stop it on social media. Stop it in our relationships. And I think that's that's profoundly important. Uh, That's going to make probably a greater difference in the life of the individual than than one would ever guess. Yeah, I agree. And that's a terrific practice right there. And I'd like to, you know, point out the karma, you know, there's both individual karma and collective karma, but collective mm-hmm. karma is simply, you know, the sum total of of individual actions acting out on the social structural stage. Yep. And so, um, you know, like Gandhi said, be the change you want to be. And there's a great example of one man with a positive mindset about what the future of his country could be or should be, who had an enormous impact on the collective karma of, um, of India. And so yeah. every, everyone can do their part just by starting, you know, to shift their mindset and to, to practice positivity. Absolutely. And to practice it in the direction of a goal. You know, people think that positive thinking always has to go toward businesses. You know, it does. And I applaud that. I applaud that. But the idea of having a single goal, Gandhi had a single goal, which was to free a nation and make it into a democracy. Well, it so happens that it works. You know, Mm -hmm. having that one single definite goal, uh, I think is so vital and it enlists 
so many energies from the individuals. And that's another thing I think we can do. You know, abstaining from gossip doesn't mean sitting around like a hermit all day long. Right, absolutely. Maybe the, all that energy and all that wasted time and wasted energy can be directed toward a goal, whatever it is. It may be business-oriented, it may be personal, you may be a teacher, you may be a soldier, whatever it is that you want to do well, oh, you know, so much gets unleashed right. when you're focused on that, that one defining goal. Right. You know, I want to ask you something because you wrote a book about this that I think most people have an incorrect idea about, and that's this, I, the word and the um, notion of, of a cult. And what mm -hmm. I, what I understand, you know, a cult just means hidden. And so yep. a lot of these uh, metaphysical uh, systems and training, you know, uh, like the Rosicrucians and stuff like that mm -hmm. in the, in the yeah. European past, well, they couldn't do it openly like we talked about in this podcast yep. because they got persecuted. So they right. took it hidden and it became the occult. Now, I think most Americans think the occult is magic and that's not accurate, right? That's correct. You know, the occult was, it, it's a term, you're absolutely correct, that comes out of the Latin term occulta or occultum, which just means secret or hidden. Right. It came into use in the early Renaissance simply because Renaissance scholars were rediscovering the ancient civilizations and religious systems of Egypt, Rome, Greece, but the temple orders and the structures of the ancient world had all been long gone, mm -hmm. and they were trying to find a way to refer to this early pre-Christian spirituality, and in trying to find terms in which to discuss it, they would call it uh, occult or secret, hidden, only because its its structures and orders were gone. Most of its chief documents at that time were untranslated. It was an unknown territory to the Western mind. Mm -hmm. And the term occult henceforth came to be used to describe this ancient pre-Christian spirituality. It didn't mean sinister or demonic very often it was referring to some sort of esoteric or magical practices, but it could also be referring to a set of ethics, a set of principles that belong to the spiritual orders of the old world. But it just means secret or, or hidden. Mm -hmm. People shouldn't have sinister connections with it. And I freely use terms like occult or new age or mm -hmm. ESP or even positive thinking because I think those terms have historical integrity and I don't want us to lose them. You know, just because some people are critical of those terms mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we jettison them as if they're not valuable. They, they have a place in history. They have a place in our lives. So so nowadays, you know, I invite people to call me New Age, and it's such a relief not to be running from a term like that just because I know what the negative associations are. People mm -hmm. think it's soft-headed, uh, foolish, unrealistic. I, I get it. But it also captures something about a therapeutic spirituality that's grown up in this country, and uh, I don't want us to lose those terms. I don't want us to right. lose our history. Right. Let's talk about the Masons. Now, they were in a, uh, at least a lot, a lot of people believe they were in a cult or a secret organization, and that the Masons had a lot of, um, like, founding fathers were part mm -hmm. of the group, and yeah, yeah. they were a metaph you know, they had metaphysical practices, and they were yeah. early proponents of the power of positive thinking, right? Yeah, and I think the Masons, by and large, have been a very good influence on Western life. You know, mm -hmm. they, 
they they're obviously still around. They're not uh, anywhere near as influential politically today as they were, say, at the time of our nation's founding, when you had people like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and um, John Hancock, who in fact were Freemasons. Um, they were a group that believed in religious liberty, that believed that the individual's own spiritual and ethical search should be protected, should be valued. Uh, they believed in ecumenism. You you could belong to different religions as long as you profess the belief in one creator. You could serve as a as a Freemason. And they probably had their earliest roots in some of the religious experiments that were going on during the Renaissance mm -hmm. when some of the ancient religious ideas were being rediscovered. And they believed that great societies like the dawning United States in 1776 belonged to a kind of chain of civilizations, Egypt, Greece, Rome, that were involved in one way or another in the spiritual search. And I think that certain ethics of religious liberty uh, and certain protections of the individual search for meaning uh, were moved along uh, promoted, uh, helped into actualization by Freemasonry at mm -hmm. this country's founding. And I, I, they were certainly a secretive organization, and particularly back in Europe, there was a necessity to be secretive if you were dabbling in ideas that went outside of what was considered mm -hmm. socially or in some cases even legally acceptable. But in this country, I think Masonry has been a really very positive influence, and I would encourage people to take a second look at it. Today, Masonry exists largely as a civic and charitable organization, but back in the day when it was politically powerful, uh, I think that, that, that it imparted and help nurture some very good ideas about individual liberty and mm -hmm. religious liberty. It's been a it's been a positive part of our history. Right. Do you think there any of those early elements still exist within the Masonic structure? I mean, do they are there people who are trying to reach the thirty third level and you know trying to find enlightenment through the Masons, or is it really like some. you said, civic organization? Well, you know, there's a younger breed of Masons who are more interested nowadays in the more esoteric side of Masonry, and mm -hmm. some of that younger group is gaining influence, which I really applaud. You know, for for a cup for several generations in our country, I think we've had many Masons um, who have seen the organization as a place to make business right. contacts, do good charitable yeah. work, network, and frankly, to have a nice meal and to have a meeting and to you know get together in a fraternal atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a younger group of Masons today, and they're interested in pursuing some of the esoteric teachings more deeply. So mm -hmm. I think actually the younger group is, is reviving Masonry as an organization of spiritual search rather than a strictly civic and charitable organization. It's always coexisted. I mean, these mm -hmm. varying trends have always been found within Masonry, uh, but I think the esoteric uh, threads are being more bound together, are becoming more a part of the fabric of contemporary Masonry right now. Yeah, fascinating. Wow. Well, I could we could talk for probably another two hours, but um, we're already <laughs> at about 41 minutes. I want to um, – a couple more questions that, that are going to get more into, like, practical uh, things for the for the listeners. But who sure. – like, what would you recommend, you know, if, if you said, okay, read this one book right now to someone who really has not been exposed to positive mind metaphysics, what would you recommend? Who's your favorite author, thinker in this 
Well, I have several favorites, but if somebody was brand new to the field and said, come on, you know, what can this stuff really do for me? I I suppose I would probably say Read, Think, and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Some people are turned off by the title because they think maybe it seems greedy or it seems excessively material. But I've written, and I'll stand by this, that any artist, any actor, any activist who hasn't read Think and Grow Rich is is selling himself short. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take the principles in that book, and if you follow them, you really follow them with all your your heart and with all your intellect, because there's no halfway. You know, mm-hmm. you have to either be completely in. in it or don't even approach the gates. Right. But if you if you really put yourself into that book with everything you've got, things will happen. Things will happen. I stand by every principle in that book. And and I would say that for the non-business person, there is a world to be discovered within that book. I've had doctors tell me that book has been meaningful to Mm -hmm. them. Anybody Mm -hmm. with a goal will we'll derive something out of that book. So there are many authors I love, but I would recommend that as a starting place. Yeah, it's a great, and it's all, I would love to see it updated, you know, because I actually was listening to it um, on audio tape recently, and, you know, the, it's like right at the, it was written right after the market crash of 1929, yeah. or was published, yeah. I should say. And, uh, of course, the earlier volumes of Laws of Success, you know, preceded that. But Think and Grow yep. Rich was kind of like the popular version of that philosophy. And it yeah. meant to be read by the masses. But, you know, it's really interesting. He's talking about, you know, different entrepreneurial ideas that just seem yep. so arcane today. And I think it would yeah. it'd be cool if we could find a way to update that book with more modern mm-hmm. examples and whatnot. Well, you know, I, I have a piece online that your your listeners might dig called um, How to Read a Self-Help Book. If you just mm. throw my name and that title, How to <laughs> Read a Self-Help Book, into Google, you'll find it. And, you know, I, I kind of walk people through not getting hung up on some of the arcane terms and sure. language because some of the great literature is characterized by terms that we wouldn't use today or right. social situations that we no longer have. Um, so you know one can approach it as it is and still realize okay there's going to be certain things in here that are that are outdated but right. the master's principles are still absolutely rock solid yeah i agree with that 100% and I, that's one that i recommend as a starting point too i love that um and then what about practice what what do you personally how do you personally practice you know this philosophy yeah. Well, I have several aspects of my practice. One is meditation. I think everybody should have some sort of meditative practice. Mine mm-hmm. happens to be transcendental meditation. Mm-hmm. It's very important to get to a place where your thinking is focused at least twice a day, at mm-hmm. least twice a day for a fairly extended period, by which I mean somewhere between 20 minutes and a half hour twice a day. You need to be sitting in a situation where your mind is just focused in a certain way and mm-hmm. you're getting in touch with certain core principles that tell you who you are, mm-hmm. what you're working for, what you're about. Right. I think it's extremely important to write down goals and I don't mean write them down in just some rote passive way, but to sit down and subject yourself to a really personal uninhibited scrutiny in which you ask yourself, what do I really want? Not what do I tell myself I want? Not what have I told myself for the past 15 years? Mm -hmm. But what do I really want that I might even be embarrassed to admit to people that I might even be embarrassed to go public with? It's so important to be uninhibited and completely brave and intimate with yourself about what you really want. And, and, Hone that list, hone that list down to one absolutely 
core goal, and that should be something that is always, always in front of your mind. And I think that using your mind to visualize and affirm, not just in ways that involve recitation, but in ways that you're you're getting into a very quiet, relaxed state. It's good to do this just before you drift off to sleep at night or just when you are coming to wakefulness in the morning. Use your mind in that very supple state to repeat your aim to yourself, to visualize that aim, to affirm that aim, not just in the style of repetition, but in a kind of unified state when your emotions, your body, your mind all seem to be on the same track. Mm -hmm. That's a very precious and valuable moment. That's an exercise that I would use every day. And I think it's also important to have uh, a program of reading ethical literature at your back that you use every day. You should be reading passages from the Gospels or the Tao Te Ching or the Bhagavad Gita or Ralph Waldo Emerson, some great enduring ethical literature mm -hmm. so that your moral compass is, is pointed in the right direction. Those would be four steps you know, that, that, that I would recommend to everybody. Yeah, I love that. And that, that fourth one is really critical too because that has one, been one of the big criticisms legitimately, and I know you reference that in your book, of the whole yeah. positive kind of genre of writing is that, you know, some of the people who did the writing, you know, didn't necessarily always follow an ethical path or a moral code that, you know, that could stand, right. stand scrutiny, right? And so maybe they didn't walk their talk as much. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just part of the human situation. It's who we are. But mm -hmm. I think, you know, anybody who's going to embark on any kind of program of practical spirituality, uh, metaphysical search, should have an ethical teaching at their back. And, and it should be part of their daily practice, daily reading. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Awesome. This has been fantastic. Uh, Mitch, thank you. Very, very interesting. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm, I'm going to go back and read the book cover to cover. Um, where can people find more about you? I guess just by Googling your name, Mitch Horowitz, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. Yeah. Right. I'm super easy to find. Throw my name into Google. Uh, it'll take you to my website. There are various links there, things that your listeners might find interesting. Um, once you put my name into Google, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have a whole variety of things to choose from. <laughs> right. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. I uh, look forward to sure. uh, meeting in person someday and, Likewise. and maybe, uh, maybe doing this again. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. All right, folks, there you hear it. Uh, Mitch Horowitz, One Simple Idea. I highly encourage you to check out the book if you have an interest in the whole um, history. And um, he's got some great uh, tips and, and takeaways on a lot of the different positive thinking um, authors and leaders. It's just fascinating. So I really, really honor uh, Mitch's contribution to the whole field. And um, as usual, stay focused on your own daily practice, in particular the morning rituals. If you don't practice, it doesn't work. You do the work and you will uh, find those breakthroughs that you're looking for. Reach out to myself or my team at Info and Unbeatable Mind if you have any questions or issues. Uh, stay focused, train hard, have fun, and uh, don't forget to go ahead and rate uh, this podcast on iTunes. Hoo-yah, Coach Divine out. Hey, you know yoga is for warriors. Maybe you've heard that my new book, Kokoro Yoga, is out. I'm totally stoked about this book. It's been over a year in the making. So go to warrioryoga.com to buy the book, because if you do, I'll give you a couple free things, such as the first chapter of the book, as well as a video for recovery. So prepare your body, mind, and spirit on your quest to self-mastery by checking out Kokoro Yoga. 
Go to warriorgrid.com. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.